Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May the 3rd, 2022. As always, I'm in San Francisco, the city that houses many young entrepreneurs trying to scale up their big ideas, trying to become multimillionaires and billionaires. Of course, the platonic version, or the original platonic version of that entrepreneur is Elon Musk. He's very much in the news. He's always in the news as the founder of Tesla and SpaceX. And now he's trying to take over Twitter. It's a really interesting piece in the New York Times today. Him acknowledging, and it's no great surprise, that he doesn't really have a business plan. The piece suggests that he's surrounded by 10 confidants who are essentially followers who carry out his bidding. And as he acknowledges, um, uh, he said, I don't really have a business plan. Uh, I had a business plan way back in the Zip2 days. That was his original startup. But these things are always wrong, so I just didn't bother with business plans after that. I'm not sure what that tells us about how to take a a good idea and make it scale, make it successful. Uh, My guest today on the show is a very distinguished professor of economics and business at the the University of Chicago and the author of of, of an intriguing new book, The Voltage Effect, How to make good ideas great and great ideas scale. Uh, John uh, A-List, he of course is a, I can't resist John the silly joke, you are on the A-List of economists. Uh, Elon Musk is very much on the A-List of entrepreneurs. How has he made his good ideas scale in your view? What is it about Musk that teaches budding entrepreneurs about how to take ideas and actually make them real in the world. Yeah. So, Andrew, thanks for having me on. I, I'm a big fan of your show. So it's it's funny that Musk says he doesn't have a plan because when you look at what he has done, I think you do see a plan. And I talk about it in the book. Musk really starts by focusing on the supply side of scaling. He looks at ideas and he explores, do they have good supply side characteristics? And what I mean by that is as you grow and grow and grow and you scale, what does it cost? What's the marginal cost of actually producing that good or service? And Musk is brilliant at thinking about ideas that can scale because they have great supply side features. And that's exactly how he's been so brilliant in winning many markets. And I don't doubt that now that he's taken on Twitter, that he's going to find some interesting supply side features beyond growing the demand side, which he's good at too. But this is all part of an economic plan. And I see something very systematic in what he does I have to admit, I was one of the people who, at least in metaphorical terms, fortunately, I didn't lose any money. I don't have much money to lose. I shorted Tesla in my mind. I thought it was heading for disaster. Uh, But it seems as if the reason he saved it was not so much his ability to think in strategic terms, but essentially sleep, sleep at the factory 
and through his own human will make it successful? Or am I romanticizing Musk? Is there more to him than just that intense willfulness? No, I do think that's definitely part of it. Anytime I see a successful person, I see somebody who's monomaniacal. And when people ask me, I, I've worked in government, I've worked in the academy, I've worked in the business world, and there is one feature that everyone who has big success in whatever they're doing actually has, and that's being monomaniacal. When I was the chief economist at Uber, I would talk to Travis Kalanick, and I would ask him, you know, Travis, what do you plan on doing this weekend? And Travis would say, I'm just going to hang out with my wife. And I would say, what? I didn't know you were married. He said, John, my wife is Uber. Travis was monomaniacal <laughs> about changing the face of transportation. And he ate it, he lived it, and he breathed it. And that's exactly what Musk has too. So I, I think that's an important part of it. Yeah, maybe that's one of the reasons why Musk has never stayed married, that uh, he's married to his 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 projects. Uh, I knew Kalalnik in the old days before Uber. Uh, I knew him in the 90s when he was a failed entrepreneur. But there, what struck me about him was his ambition and his willingness to fail. You, you have this idea... Um, that you say unique humans don't scale. What does that mean uh, in terms of the voltage effect uh, when we think of people like Kalalnik and, and Musk? We sure. can't, uh, do they not scale? You can't make more than one, Travis, more than one Elon Musk? No, no, that's right. So th that's essentially chapter three in the voltage effect. And it's titled, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? And what I mean by that is there are a lot of restaurants that have tried to scale and many restaurants have failed. And the ones that have failed fail because their initial success is due to a unique person, namely a chef. So when they try to scale up and have five, 10, 15, 100,000 restaurants, whatever, if the unique ingredients that cause the success early on is a unique human, that will never scale. Now, and I know you use um, British chef Jamie Oliver as as, as a model for that. Who's a very successful chef, but not a particularly successful businessman. No, that's right. That's right. So, a lot of times people think they can teach uniqueness, or they think that if they put people through classes of, about human capital classes, they can teach it. You can't. Now, the one shot you have is if you can put it into a process. So occasionally, unique humans can be processed. And what I mean by that is think about a great coder, great programmer. Um, in the past, it was very difficult to put that into AI or machine learning. Now today, we're starting to realize that ML and AI can actually write code better than some particular individuals. So that's beginning to take a unique human and putting it into a process. So that's a way that you can scale unique people is to try to process them in a way. John, um, 
you're familiar, of course, you teach at business school, you use this word scale all the time. I hear it in Silicon Valley, but some of our audience are still, I think, going to be mystified by this yeah. word. It has, at least in Silicon Valley, magical qualities. What does it mean? And why do some people treat it as a form of magic? Yeah. So let's back up and say, okay, what is scale? To me, scale is I try it in one market. And let's say I call it the Petri dish and it it works. So I, I try it in Chicago and it works. Now, if I want to horizontally scale that idea, that means I want to take it to Cleveland, Cincinnati, Washington, D.C., Denver, San Francisco. I'm scaling across input markets. And I'm doing so in a way where I'm trying to take my idea to new markets, new input and output markets. Now, another way to think about scaling is I have one restaurant in Chicago. Maybe now I want a thousand restaurants in Chicago. That's what I call vertical scaling. So it's using the same market, the same input market, the same output market, and I'm putting more restaurants or more theaters, whatever, within that same market. Now, the the reason why I distinguish between horizontal and vertical scaling is that they take different types of characteristics of an idea to succeed when you go across markets versus when you stay within your same market. And in many cases, entrepreneurs don't have that mindset when they think about, I want to take over the world. They want to do it very fast. They want to move fast and break things. What I'm asking them to do is instead of moving fast and breaking things, actually use science to move fast and move fast in a smart way. John, there are many, many good ideas, but most of them don't scale. Are you suggesting then that an entrepreneur with an idea should think of scale before the idea? That, um, Absolutely. That, that scale is the first step in, in thinking out the business opportunity because good ideas are plentiful, ubiquitous. Anyone can get, have those. No, you're, you're exactly right. I, I think from the beginning, I want you to think about your idea in a way that asks, how big can this scale? And what are the flaws in the idea that will cause it not to scale? And that's useful for two reasons. One, it will cause you not to overinvest in an idea that has no shot of really scaling. And two, it will help you to adjust or pivot around that idea to create an idea that has a better shot of scaling. I have many friends in Silicon Valley and they always talk about scale and they always think about billion dollar ideas or multi-billion dollar ideas and founding the next unicorn. When one thinks about scale, should one be thinking in financial terms or is it um, is it a, a broader, perhaps even a more philosophical conversation? Yeah. So to me, it all depends on who you are. When I talk to government officials, of course, they're after affecting as many people in even small ways as they possibly can. And that's a useful way to think about scale. On the business side, it's how big can I grow the top and bottom lines? Now, where I refute the person who wants to chase after the next unicorn, I would say there are a lot of different flavors of ideas. 
And if you can have a quarter or a half of a unicorn, in many cases, that's worth chasing in part because a lot of times that half unicorn can pivot into something even bigger. And um, in a way, two halves, of course, equal a whole. And from the very beginning, I don't think we should discard all ideas that can't take over the world. I think that's a, a misnomer. And that's really not what my book is about. My book is for the entrepreneur who even wants to grow a one or two person business because it gives you ideas about how you should treat exactly the execution and exactly how big can your idea be from the very beginning. It's a very human book, John, and you're a very human thinking or human centric economist. Um, in contrast, I think, with other business and startup economists, I know you've been very influenced by behavioral economics. What do what does behavioral economics tell us about the lure, the seductiveness of good ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. So. Behavioral economics from the very beginning can lead us astray when we look at our idea. For example, most humans have what psychologists call confirmation bias. Now, what that means is when you have an idea, you really have a strong feeling that that idea will work. So you go out and test it and you get back data. Now, let's say that that data says, you know what, that idea is not very good. What confirmation bias compels you to do is you say, ah, those data really aren't very good data. We should test it again. And then the minute some new evidence comes in that is in your favor, you say, voila, look mm. at that. The evidence is in my corner. Let's scale this thing. So many businesses that I've worked in, many startups that I talk to, nearly everyone has the conviction of their ideas. And that's great. But you can push it too far in that confirmation bias leads you down this path of, look, all the evidence is saying don't do it. But because of confirmation bias, the one piece of evidence that tells you to do it, you actually follow it. And you don't have people around you. That, that's what struck me in, in what you put up there about Musk, is that he has this inner circle of confidants. And it's important, however, within that inner circle, is that you have naysayers and you have contrarians and people who will tell you, look, that idea might be great, but let me give you five reasons why it's not. And I'm going to go out and gather the evidence to see if what I'm saying is correct. And the entrepreneur needs to listen to that naysayer or, or that person who is consistently saying, let's double check. Because bandwagon effects, which we all know about, confirmation bias, all of these things wrapped up in our minds. We want to chase after that idea that we so truly believe in. And that's, of course, John, why you say that quitting is not for losers, it's for winners. The really smart entrepreneurs are the ones, Reid Hoffman's often said this, who understand that an idea isn't going to work for one reason or other, and they move on to the next one. There's always another good idea, isn't there, John? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Look, look, two things. Successful entrepreneurs think differently, 
and they also know when to quit. The, the problem with quitting is that society has taught us that if we quit, that we're losers. And if you look up quitting in the dictionary, it will probably say something like, this is the most repugnant word in the English language. Society has tricked us into thinking we shouldn't quit. Now, secondly, we've also tricked ourselves into not quitting enough. And this is kind of for two behavioral economic reasons. One, if we invest a lot of our time in an idea, we have what's called sunk cost fallacy. We don't want to let it go because we're recognizing all of our previous investment. And we think that's going to be completely lost if we end up letting the idea go. And that's terrible. The other reason why is because we neglect our opportunity cost of time. Now, now that's a lot of economies, Andrew. So let me unpack that. What I mean is I ran a survey of recent job quitters and I, I asked them a simple question. Why did you quit your job? The first reason was my boss no longer appreciated me. Second reason, I didn't get the promotion. Third reason, I didn't get the pay raise. Dot, 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 all the way down to the 10th reason, I didn't like my cubicle anymore. Every reason was because the current job got soiled. People don't think about, well, look, the opportunity cost of being in that job meant I can't take this other job. We should periodically look at the opportunities that we have out there. And if those opportunities get better, that should compel us to move just as often as when our own lot in life gets soiled. But they don't because people neglect those opportunities. And it's a systematic human bias that we make. And in the, you're right, in chapter nine in the book, I talk about quitting and how to think about why, why should you quit? What is the optimal quitting rule? And it lays it out to overcome these behavioral and human biases. John, uh, are entrepreneurs born or made? Are many people simply not equipped to be entrepreneurs? We did a show a couple of months ago with Daniel Horowitz. He's a cultural critic. He's written a book about what Shark Tank, the show on startup entrepreneurs, tells us about what he calls the unreality of life in America. For him, Shark Tank is fantasy. It's sort of um, it's tricking people into believing that they can all become successful entrepreneurs. Are you worried? You're a hardcore economist, the kind of people who will read The Voltage Effect and not probably the kind of people who will watch Shark Tank. But are you worried that uh, the startup culture in America presents this as an opportunity for everyone when most people simply aren't suited, aren't able to do it? You know, when you think of startups, it, it really takes a multi-talented person or a person to put people around her who are talented. So you have to have an idea generation. You have to figure out what are the tweaks to that idea to make it have the chance to scale. And then you have to execute. And you have to take that idea from zero to hero, essentially. And I don't think any one person can ever do that alone. 
but I do think that any one person has characteristics or features that can play an important role amongst that team that does take an idea from zero to hero. And I see it all the time. Look, there I've been around a lot of great leaders and they're all great on many dimensions, but they're not great on all dimensions. And they do understand their comparative advantage. And what I mean by comparative advantage is we're all good at something relative to others. As a leader, it's your job to put people in positions where they can succeed and they can take your idea to scale. So to answer your question, no, I think the American dream is alive and well, and we all should have that sort of aspiration, but we should understand that we're but one person and it's gonna take a chain of really good people to take an idea to scale. John, you've done a lot of work also in the area of charitable giving and um, social capitalism. It was an interesting piece. I don't know if you saw it this morning by Rana Faruha in the FT. She's been on the show and she, which she talks about the failures of stakeholder capitalism. My sense is often with stakeholder capitalism, people think that they can be simultaneously rich and successful. When it comes to social capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, are there different laws in terms of the voltage effect? Or is it always the same about making good ideas great and great ideas scale? Yeah, no, I think it's the same. I, I think that the ideas in the book will work for 501c3s or charitable organizations. It will work for government. It will work for individuals. It will work for a large firm like Walmart. Um, as you probably know, I'm the chief economist yeah, at Walmart. Yeah, you, you went over there from uh, Uber and you're the you were the chief economist at Uber, then Lyft, now Walmart. That's right. I can't keep a job, Andrew. <laughs> you're definitely the A-list, John. I mean, you can't get much bigger than Walmart, can you? I guess Amazon, maybe. Well, no, we call Walmart the Fortune One. So um, so I'm happy there. Of course, I just started yesterday, so we'll see how it goes. What do chief economists do? It's not a full-time job. Yeah, it? it's. Um, I'm building an economics team right now that will be part partly engaged in pricing. And we're going to spend a lot of time running around e-commerce as well. And I think from there, we'll probably move to the HR side and, and think about the labor side of the of the org. But look, e economics is life and life is economics. So when you think about what does a chief economist do within a firm, it's pretty much everything. And whenever an economics issue comes to light or there's an economics problem, you need a good economist in the room. And that's that's what my team provides for these firms. We had another economist on the show, Elizabeth Pop Berman. She thinks, and she may not be quite as distinguished as you, but she's a highly respected economist. She thinks that thinking like an economist might be a form of madness. Do you ever think you're a little crazy, John? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, uh, of course. Of course. We, uh, we all have a little bit of craziness in us, and we all have crazy ideas, but... I, I, I view the economic way of thinking as sort of second nature to me. That's why I fell in love with economics when I first took the course, is that everything that I was learning 
was just second nature to me. And it was how I actually thought about the world already. And I wondered why everyone around me was having so much trouble learning about these concepts of opportunity cost, comparative advantage, resource allocation, incentives, et cetera. When it, it would just, it just always feels like common sense to me. So if somebody would say thinking like an economist is a, a crazy man syndrome, then call me crazy. You, of course, teach at the University of Chicago, and those were the ideas associated with neoliberalism that some people, particularly on the left, believe have essentially wrecked America. Uh, do you think there's too much economic thinking in government policy, at least over the last 50 years in America, which has hollowed out the public sphere? Oh, gosh, I don't think so. I, I think, you know, I worked in the government for two years and I was an advisor for President Bush. And when you which, which Bush, the first uh, Bush one or two uh, Bush two. So so I worked from 2002 to 2003. So what you learn quickly is around a table. There are a lot of different points of view and there are at times some conflicting interest, but I think the economics point of view should always have a seat at the table. And then the policymaker has to decide how much weight am I going to place on that economics point of view? Now, I certainly understand that somebody could say, wow, economics is a principle is so powerful that if you allow it a seat at the table, it's going to eat much more than it should. They should have these other people eating a little bit more at the table. But, but I think it's because, first of all, I don't think that that's happened to answer your question, but I, people might view that because it's such a compelling way to think about making decisions and it's a compelling way to allocate resources or think about incentives or what road we should go down along a particular line of whether it's free trade or immigration or incentives for polluters, what have you, the economic way of thinking I, I, I view is should always have a place at the table. What about the role of time, John? Is it, are the, the best ideas only ready at a certain moment? We did a show couple of years ago on the universal basic income. I know you have some thoughts on that. It comes up all the time. Are some big ideas like our readiness for universal basic income, that obviously scales, but it, it really depends on timing, doesn't it? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So there are a lot of ideas. And, and when you think about ideas around scaling, there are a lot of ideas in the wasteland of scaling that 20 years ago somebody had and it just wasn't viable. It wasn't viable because maybe people couldn't work from home because of social norms or maybe there just weren't enough computer programmers around or the computing power just wasn't available. If you go back to that wasteland of ideas, I would bet you a dollar to a donut that there will be several that are now scalable because of technology and because technology now has allowed us to expand our frontier 
of what's possible. And those ideas that were discarded a few decades ago are now perfectly scalable. I think that that can be a nice fund that somebody starts. Now, in terms of policies, that's always about timing. You, you know, eventually a wealth tax will come. When, when will the timing be? And eventually, as, as economists remind us, uh, John, in the long run, we're all dead. Yeah, exactly. It's what Keynes said, is in the long run, we're all dead. It, but I, I think we're, we're not going to be dead by the time things like UBI or, or some kind of tax on wealth come. I, I, I think you can see the momentum going in that direction. And, and I think eventually it's going to have to, the stars are going to have to align but I think the stars will likely align within our lifetimes. John, as you said earlier, you were the chief economist at Uber and Lyft, uh, so you know your way around the digital economy. Perhaps the biggest question, and we have so many shows on this recently, we had the Oxford University professor Victor Meyer Schoenberger on, talking about free access to data. He has new book out, Access Rules, Freeing Data from Big Tech for a Better Future. How are we gonna fix, John? The problem of big tech. Yeah. Um, easy final question for you. Yeah, easy final question. <laughs> How do you fix climate change? <laughs> give us, give us your answer in twenty seconds. Um, I, I, I think we need to have a serious discussion about the value of data, the value of privacy, and and the value of when somebody goes in an Uber or somebody goes on Amazon or somebody goes on Facebook, or somebody goes on Google, they of course lay a track, uh, a path of dollar bills. And those dollar bills end up being very important when people start to monetize. I think the day is coming soon where some of that value, if not most of it, will be given back to consumers. And I think scholars are beginning to talk about this more and more. The policymakers from the FTC all the way down to state governments, they're talking about it more and more. And I think as people realize that data itself is really, really valuable, but the true value, of course, comes in the data refiner. So data in and of themselves aren't that valuable, but the minute you add a good data refinery, which is these data scientists at top tech firms. Now you have some true value. And that value, of course, is going to eventually be shared. And I think that hearing will be coming soon. John, can we knock Travis uh, out of the equation? Uh, can the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world be knocked out of the equation? There are disciples of, of what we call now Web3 that suggests that we can have DAOs, networks, which connect directly, say, drivers and riders. So you'd no longer need a Lyft or an Uber in the future. And that might share the profits, do away with multi-billionaires like Travis Kalalnik and create... Uh, more equitable organizations in the future. Is there anything in that or is that more Silicon Valley idealism? No, you know, I, I've always thought that the future of moving humans around and Uber and Lyft's place in that future is, is really 
contingent on two things. You mentioned one, that there might be some kind of super network that develops and they want to be a piece of that. The other one is the actual physical capital and the human capital, and that's autonomous. I've always thought that whoever wins autonomous, that will be the winner of rideshare because you've taken a big part of the cost equation out. Right now, drivers are getting 75, 80% of every fare and Uber and Lyft are taking 20 or 25% commission. And that's a big cost component. So whoever gets the tech right and, and can have some sort of dominant advantage at owning the capital to that tech, I think that's the other way that you could think about Uber and Lyft in terms of not being part of some important future. Wise words from the author of The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale, John A. List. Congratulations, John, on the book. It's just out, a must-read for anyone interested in building a more successful business. Uh, what else should people be reading in May 2022, John, in addition to The Voltage Effect? Oh, gosh. Okay, so I'm going to start being a little bit uh, a homer here. I'm going to say my wife's book, A Parent Nation, she just came out talking about... Are you going to risk me drag her on the show now? You, I want you to drag her on the show because you'll like her. She's arguing that in America, we're short-shrifting parents. And it's American firms who are not giving them the benefits that they deserve for being parents. I'm talking about parental leave. I'm talking about high quality early child care. So her book just came out actually on April 26th. So so I hope people can take a look well, at what's that. What's her name, John? You haven't her even name mentioned Dana Suskind, and she's a University of Chicago surgeon. Wow. And she's also a social scientist who works on early childhood education. So she's a cochlear implant surgeon, and she started working with deaf kids, and she saw how their development, their brain development was deeply affected by the lack of language and interaction in the early years. So she started doing social science about that question. And this is her second book that she's written. And I'm, I'm very proud of Parent Nation. Now, the second book just came out today. It's titled The No Club. And this is by four friends of mine, four academics. And they write about women in the workplace and how women are constantly doing tasks that just aren't rewarded. And they feel, and I think rightfully so, they lay out a very good scientific case about how we need to make dramatic changes in the workplace. And great scientists, just like Dana on, on the one hand, and these are folks you might wanna have in too, because they have a, just a wonderful book that compiles a lot of science in the area of gender economics. And a lot of what we can learn from them, we can use to make the world a better place. Yeah, we've done some stuff on gender economics. I think that would be another excellent show. John List, the author of The Voltage Effect. Wise advice on future reading as well. Oh, who runs the world, John? in uh, early May 2022. Who's, who's running the show these days? The world is run by data. The woman